There comes a time when every settlement is due. No compromise, no other point of view. There comes a time when no one ever takes the blame. No sentiment, whoever's in the frame. Strapped down in a cold town, dying to pay the rent. But the masterminds are selling you is heaven sent.
and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Straubs and Settlement, the title track of their new album. I've got a brilliant, brilliant pleasure to welcome Blue Weaver here today. Blue produced that fantastic album, but we're in for a real treat on the podcast today because he's featured on much of the best music ever made, really. So hopefully we'll do tribute to his remarkable career here and, and uh, play a selection of those tracks. Um, a huge welcome, Blue. Hi, Jason. It's great to great to be on your podcast. No, even greater for you to be on here. It'd be good to, first of all, talk about Settlement. That's something that, especially in these lockdown or COVID times, that the album was done remotely. Was that the original plan for the album or did it evolve out of this where people or musicians can't get together? Well, I mean, it was because it the whole thing, I mean, it wasn't, the album wasn't planned, actually. Right. What happened was that we did the Straub's 50th anniversary concert in New Jersey, in, in New York, in 2019. I think April, I think it was around about April. And uh, we recorded everything and videoed it. And Dave Cousins asked me if I would mix the Grave New World part, because we actually performed Grave New World as an artistic piece, if you like. And we had a commentary by Wesley Stace in between the, in linking the numbers. And um, so I, I had all the, I was going to say the tapes. <laughs> it's not the tapes. I had all the, all the WAV files. I had the whole yeah. Pro Tools recording. And I was working on that. And I'd sort of done one song. I've done the first, the beginning and sort of mapped everything out. And then Dave came on to me and he said, look, uh, Cherry Red wants a, a studio album, so to speak. And I can't remember the, the, the reasons why. I think it was something to do with Brexit as well, yeah. because they just want to get something in the bag before Brexit happened. Because I think a lot of their stuff is uh, maybe some, I don't know whether their press, their distribution or yeah. something to do with it. It, it, Brexit would, they thought may affect them. And I think they just wanted the vinyl and stuff. So they wanted to get covered there. So Dave said, stop everything. Will you produce an album for us? I mean, he, he'd already been over to my house here and seen my setup. And I said, yeah, I'd be more than pleased. He said, okay, we've got to get finished. We've got a deadline of, I think, first of all, the October the 1st, but that was pushing it a bit. And so we moved the deadline to sort of the end of October to get everything finished by. So that was the story behind settlement. And obviously because of COVID and all the restrictions, there's no way we could all get together in, in a studio and record it. So this was the only way we could do it, really. And, you know, three of the guys in Britain, one in Portugal, um, one was in Mexico for part of the time and then in, in, in America. So we thought we'd give it a try. And I said to Dave, what equipment have you, have you got? And he said, um, well, <laughs> what do I need? <laughs> I found there's there's very good Neumann mics that are quite reasonably priced. And I'd been having good results in my room with that. So I said to Dave, get this Neumann. And then I said, he said, well, what am I going to record it into? And I was trying to think, and I'd been using uh, for live recordings a Zoom uh, H6, it's sort of a four-track recorder, uh, very high quality, and it had been brilliant. And I said to him, he only had a PC at the time, I said, get this, and you can plug a mic in, you can plug your guitar in, and just send me the files. And once I've got templates and stuff mapped out, I'll send them back to you, put them in, in your PC, 
play them back on the headphones and record into and record into the Zoom. And that's the way we did it. He set himself up in a bedroom, got some mattresses from the spare room, put it up to try and deaden the sound, sent some vocals over and said, how's this? I gave him some recommendations. But that's basically the way we did the guitars and the vocal from Dave like that. Were you used to working in that way? Because it must have been quite an undertaking with all the individual parts um, having to put them in remotely. It was. I mean, I have worked, I, I've worked like this for, for a number of years. I've done stuff uh, back when I was living in Spain because I was living in the middle of nowhere and doing stuff with people in London, uh, people in America. So I'd done a little bit of it. I mean, but not to the extent that we were actually creating the songs or Dave was writing the songs, getting the ideas, sending them to me. Uh, I was putting my ideas into it. Then we'd send it to Chaz, Chaz Cronk, the bass player, uh, to sort of put his parts on. And um, he would put the guitars together for me and send send them back to me. Then at least we'd make up a template, mainly with a click track. I mean, the click track was there for a reference, but I stress to everybody, yeah. you know, you play to that, but you you still don't think about it. It's just a guide there so that I've got a reference at the end to line everything up up to so yeah everybody got their parts i think um dave lambert i think he was doing his stuff on a pad on an ipad or something into an interface plugging his guitar in and he'd send me a clean guitar part and one that with effects and stuff like that and i sometimes i i would use the two or sometimes i would use one and, and put different effects on because Nobody had a sort of vision of what, what the yeah. end result was going to be. You know, that was that was the main problem. I mean, when, you, when you're in a studio um, and you've got all the guys around you, say Dave could pick up his guitar, sing the song, and everybody would get an idea. They're hearing it then that way. But uh, And you would communicate with each other. Oh, I can do this. Oh, no, if you did this, I can do that. But there was none of that. Everybody just did their parts to the tracks that we would send out. And then I would have to sit there and decide what would be used, what wouldn't be used. Did we need need more? I mean, if we needed less, that wasn't a problem. I always stated, really, it was better to give me a little bit more as long as I, you know, I, I find a way of editing stuff if it if it was too much. I, w- I would say to somebody, okay, I, you may not be playing in the first verse, but play there just in case. And then yeah. I've got a choice of how we can, I can construct the song. It was difficult. I think we got into a sort of routine in the end, which which helped. I think the main thing for me, it was hard making decisions about what I would use and what I wouldn't use, because sometimes there would be a great part, but it it wouldn't be good at that point. I mean, obviously, the way we were doing it, I could say, oh, yeah, that's great. And instead of having it there, I can move it to the second verse or something like that. You know, that's a lot easier in the, in the digital world than it was with tape, although we, that's what we used to do even with tape. You know, we would copy a part over and fly it in to where we needed it if it wasn't quite right or we didn't feel it was in the right place. I was always a little bit worried, you know, are the guys going to get a bit pissed off with me here? You know, maybe there were, there were a few bits that I know <laughs> where they thought, oh, why has he done that? You know, why that was a great, that was, a, that was my best bit. Why isn't it there? You know, or, or things like that. And that always bothered me in a way, but at the end, I, 
I didn't have anybody to refer to. I had to make the decisions myself, you know. I mean, I would always play stuff back to the guys and um, get their views. And if I could change something, if I thought it, it, was, um, it was worth it, then I would do it. Dave was, the, the, you know, I mean, he's there. He's the, the sort of main songwriter and the guiding light in Straub's. Well, he is Straub's. <laughs> he, he's, he's been, <laughs> it's his thing, you know, so I would always get feedback from him, get his views, you know. But he, he was great. He would say, you know, he'd always say, look, I'll leave it up to you. You're, you've got it all there. You, And sometimes I'd hear things a little bit differently from the way he constructed the song in the first place. And um, you'd say, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, I mean, that's, I, I like it. <laughs> I mean, the, the very first song he played me, he sent me uh, Better Days. Right. And he sent it to me, and it was a lot faster than than what's ended up on the record. And the way he was playing it, I said, oh, God, Dave, I said, it sounds like a Mexican mariachi band. You know, <laughs> I said, that's how I viewed the song. And he said, oh, okay. And then I'd forgotten about it. And I said, you need to do it a bit slower. So we slowed the track down again. But then when he sent his guitar part to Dave Bainbridge and asked him to put some put an arrangement on there, he must have said to Dave Bainbridge, oh, uh, Blue wants it sounding like a, a Mexican mariachi band, which was uh, was a joke for me at the beginning. But actually, that's what uh, Dave Bainbridge did. And, and, and it worked, you know. Um, the only thing that didn't work was it went through. And there's one part where the lyric, I mean, lyrically, that song is brilliant. But there was one part where, I suddenly thought that this is totally wrong. You know, you're singing in an up, up way, Dave, and, and in verse it should go down. So I cut everything and, and I changed the chords from major to minor. And uh, if you listen just before the end, it goes into a minor feeling, a really sad feeling. And then back into there'll be better days. And that really worked. But I didn't have time to send it to the guy, so I had to work it out myself and then say to Dave, look, just play the same chords, but in minor instead of the major. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll try that. And we did it. And, of course, it, it, it worked. It made the song a lot more credible, credible uh, because it, it, is, it, it sort of hits you as being quite different as you're going through the whole album and then suddenly Better Days comes up and it's this Mexican mariachi band. Again, I mean, I cut out some of the parts to make it a little less like that. Uh, but it, it is, it's a, it's a happy song. There'll be better days, you know. So that, that was quite funny because that was the very first beginning when he sent it to me. I thought, oh, no, what's the album going to be like? What's the songs going to be like? Hey 
drive. Girls in tight frocks breaking down. Hands on the gearbox, oily rags. We got there, come what may. And the second one was Judgment Day, uh, which I thought, wow, this is. And that was a real challenge because Dave heard the rhythm in 5-4 in timing. So I had to click. I created a click track just in 5-4. And I'm going to play guitar over it. And then I'm going to sing. He said, but when I'm singing, I'm, I'm singing in 4-4. Four, four. I'm thinking in bars of four. But when you do a whole verse, it turns and it comes back on itself. And so I gave him a click track and he couldn't find the, the, the cue to come in after, after five. Um, so I, I built him a drum track. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. And there's claps on the four and the five. So he knew after the two hand claps, that's when he had to come in on the downbeat again. And in fact, though that stayed on the track now. And then there's another drum track, which is basically more in fours, play, playing over the top of that. And then, so it's it's a real. Uh, but what's what's great is it turns around. It you know you you can you can count in fours or you can count in fives, and and, and it works. Wow. 
but the song Judgment Day was oh, was great. Then he said, uh, I did a gig in South Africa, and he said, I met this amazing bass player. And he said, he's so different and so unique than anybody I've heard. It would be a great song to send to him. And um, we sent it to him. He put three different bass parts down. He put down a basic low bass part. Then he put one that's moving more. Then he put like this marimba bass part on the side. <laughs> the, the basic one, the middle part, I actually copied the track and I put like a chorus effect on it. So there's actually four bass parts on Judgment Day. Wow. It, it's, it's great. I love that track. It's just so different. And it throws you when you try when you're going along. You're tapping your foot in fours, and suddenly the downbeat comes in. It changes, not where you expect, you know, not, not where you expect it to be. It's funny. I, I I didn't think about the timings. I just did what I you know what felt right. Uh, but Schalke, the bass player, he he played in five four. I think all the way through. Then the guitars, but it, it it's different uh, for a Straub's track. It's, it's different than anything I, I think I've heard uh, from Straub's before. Then Settlement, I said, um, Straub's are turning into a heavy metal band, you know, because <laughs> it was this huge riff that goes all the way through that they came up with. I mean, the riff is there. We, we've toned it down, but it's still a pretty heavy track for Straub's. Although, you know, I still think of the old days, I still think of Straub's as a sort of folk that we went into sort of pop and then... Um, I suppose they. everybody says they turned progressive, you know. I suppose they did in a way. I mean, they were progressive before. If you think of the, what Rick did in the band, you know. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was folk with Rick Wakeman on top. You know? yeah. That was always a, a challenge for me to, to step into Rick's shoes. Yeah. I mean, he had a lot bigger feet than me, and they wanted me to wear a blonde wig, stilts, and a, and a cape. <laughs> And I said, no, I don't join the band. <laughs> no, that was my vision that they wanted, you know, in the beginning. I said, I, I, I can't do the gig. I said, I'm nothing like Rick Wickman. I'm not a, a keyboard virtuoso. I, I said, I like creating soundscapes and stuff. I'll just play in the background. Anyway, we back to settlement again. I mean, I was so glad that they asked me to produce it. I'm really happy with, with the result. and cry. 
Now, I'm going to take you back to the swinging 60s, the first band that you're naming Shining Light, certainly in terms of the pop charts, Amen Corner. Yes, I mean, it's funny. I started playing in local bands when I was 15. And in fact, one of the first bands, Dennis Bryan, who was in Amen Corner, was in in the band. We were called Brother John and the Witnesses. And Dennis was a drummer in that band. So we played together in in three, four different uh, bands, so to speak. So, I mean, I, I was playing in, in bands and I had a job in the in the cooperative whole society, wholesale society in Cardiff when I was 15 and playing in bands at night. And I did that for a year or so. And then uh, I said, no, I went and worked in the local music store mainly because I didn't I couldn't afford an organ or an amplifier <laughs> and working in the store meant I could borrow equipment I mean Horace Gamlin in Cardiff was amazing he helped me so much he would lend me an organ lend me an amp to go off and do stuff and um, so that was Brother John in fact actually at that time I played with a lot of the bands in Cardiff because there were only two there were only two of us actually that played keyboards <laughs> And the bands all played similar material or the same stuff. It wasn't difficult to play. So I could play every night of the week if I wanted to, not only with my main band, but with other bands. But then I decided that music was what I wanted to do. And myself and a bass player uh, answered an enemy advertisement for a bass player and keyboard player in London. And we went up to London for an audition and we went in, in this church hall in in shepherd's bush and these two guys came in with welsh accents and said oh hi we're myron and byron we're managing tory reed and we're putting a band together and i said god they're from wales you know they were the original first tom jones managers um before gordon mills and um we thought god we've come all this way to to hook up with some welshmen again and then Tony Reed came in, who was a singer from Cardiff. <laughs> it was incredible coincidence. And we played and we got the gig, you know. So we went all the way to London to join a, a band with a girl from Cardiff, you know. And um, they said, okay, come up in six weeks. We're starting rehearsals. So we went back to Cardiff. But then the, the bass player, his father got ill and he said, look, I, I can't go. I've got to take over the business. They had a paint spraying business, car spraying business. So he said, you have to go on your own. So I phoned him up and I said, we've got to find another bass player. I'm coming up. So then it came time to get to London. I thought by this time I had a far fiesta organ. So I've got an organ and I've got a suitcase. And I thought, how am I going to get to London? I couldn't get it on a train or anything. And there was a guitarist in, in Cardiff called Mickey G who played with Tom Jones originally. And he'd spoken to Myron and Byron and said, look, I, w- I want to go up to London. And they said, they said, oh, well, Blue's coming up. For, and they said, OK, well, uh, he said, oh, well, can we give him a lift as well? So th- there's me with my organ and suitcase and Mickey G <laughs> in the back of a Thames van going up to London. And um, then I spent sort of nearly a year in London. And I did about three gigs, that's all. <laughs> and... I, you know, I was basically starving, but I was learning a lot. And there were companies in those days in London. There was one called Manpower. I used to go to and I could work for days and earn some money. And then we were rehearsing and trying to get gigs. But I mean, that that year in London taught me a lot, you know. And then 
I like I said, I, I was sort of starving. And then the bass player phoned me up and said, look, I've got another band together. I'll come to London and pick you up if you join our band. So they came and rescued me from London. <laughs> and I went back and I joined this band. But they were all working in the daytime and I wanted to do something full time. Mm. So I sort of let it be known. And then Andy came to me, Andy Fairweather Lowe and Dennis. And we all said, look, yeah, you know, let's find all the musicians that really want to do this and really want to make a career and let's form a band. So uh, Dennis then became the drummer and uh, we, got, we got bass player. We, we put a band together and we wanted, we loved soul music at the time and Motown and things like this. So we'd seen bands like Gino Washington, Zoop Money, Jimmy James, uh, Alan Bowne, all these, you know, they, they were sort of, I can't explain. They would they they would have a, a little. It was like a review. They'd go on and they'd play. Yeah. It was a little bit different than just a group going on stage and playing. So yes. we took it a we took it a stage further with Amen Corner, and we said, "Look, we're going to go on and we're going to actually work out a whole show that we do every night. It, we're not going to just go on and play numbers. We're going to join numbers together. In fact, when we went on stage, first of all, we play for 15 minutes nonstop. We'd go from one song to another, and the whole, you know, and the, the crowd loved it. You know, they just kept them dancing. Then we'd stop, you know, and then Andy would talk to the audience, and then we'd do other things. The sax players all had, you know, like the shadows had moves. We thought, oh yeah, this is great. So the sax players all had moves. The guitarists were moving as well, you know, and it was a show, you know. And um, but we were doing all soul numbers. We were doing. Uh, we did a blue number called Gin House, yeah. where Andy would get down on his knees, and it was a showstopper. We actually rehearsed for six months uh, because we said we want to do it. And we want to get it right. We're not going out of Wales, and we're not going to play a gig until we've actually think that we're good enough to do it all. So we did this, and we rehearsed in a rugby club, and we did our first gig there. Then we were working around Wales. And when we got one gig outside of Wales in Bournemouth Pavilion, I can't remember how we how we did it, but we had um, we bought ourselves a Middlesex ambulance to travel around in. We could get all the gear in the back and put mattresses on the back, and then two two could get in the front or three if one sat on the engine. And uh, we're going anyway. We got this gig in, in Bournemouth Pavilion, and we broke down on the Seven Bridge on the way to Bournemouth. And we broke down just as we got on the bridge and there's a sign saying 25 pounds minimum tow away fee. And we thought, oh no. So we got out and we were just at the beginning and we pushed the ambulance back off the bridge <laughs> across the across a slip road and then onto, onto the hard shoulder. And then the police came along and they said, we've been watching you. <laughs> and we said, we've got no money. <laughs> Anyway, they were very kind. They got somebody. We got the ambulance fixed. We got to the gig and we were we were supporting a, another band from London. But they called the Lemon Tree. We went on stage and it was the time of mods and rockers. And we went on and we just learned knock on wood. And no, it wasn't released in Britain. We'd had a an import. We began it again three or four times. And then in the end, the manager came on and said, look, I'm sorry, they've got to go off. We need to get the other band on. And there was chaos. I said, oh, well, look, they were watching us. And they went back to London on the Monday and told their manager. And the manager called us on the Monday and said, come up to London and do a gig for me on the Friday night. And we went up to London. We played this gig in Wickham Hall. 
in um, Romford. And that was it. He came afterwards and said, I, I, I want to manage you. You know, I'm, I'm going to make you stars. Wow. So you got a manager and... Uh, so basically, yeah. Amen Corner, we got a hit with the first record. Gin House Blues, was it? That was Gin House, yeah. Because that was the showstopper. He saw that and he said, crazy, you know. The kids went mad over that because Andy would get down on his knees, somebody give me, you know, and, and scream out, somebody give me some gin. I mean, in those days, it was important to get into the top 30. Once you got into the top 30, you would get on to automatically get on to top of the pops or hopefully you qualified then to get on yeah. top of the pops. And once you were on top of the pops, that was it. You were into the top 20 you know, next week, no, no doubt. Uh, but it was hard getting into the top 30 in those days, but everybody had a way <laughs> of doing that. Yeah. And I can remember the first gig we did after we'd been on top of the pops. It was recorded on the Wednesday, then in from Lime Grove, and it went out on the Thursday. Well, we had a gig on the Thursday, so top of the pops went out, I think, at 7 o'clock or 7.30. So we, we wouldn't be on stage until sort of 9 o'clock. And we went on. We could... and. It was unbelievable, all the screaming and all the kids. It was just like, you know, we never imagined. We'd seen it happen to the Beatles and, and things like this, but we never thought it would happen to us, you know. And from then on, it was just crazy, the whole thing. It's called Gin House.
But you had a, you also had a number one hit with if, if Paradise is half as nice. Yeah, it's half as nice. Yeah. Well, we would have been number one with with Ben Me Shape Me. Uh, we were doing like I forget one hundred and ten thousand a day or something. You know the sales on Ben Me Shape Me. And we thought, oh great, we're going to be number one. You know, no doubt about it. You know, and suddenly out of nowhere, Abba and Esther Offerim came along with Cinderella Rockefeller and ah. went straight to number one, you know. We, we never quite made it. So we had to wait until Paradise, until Half is Nice came along to get to number one. But we had, you know, wow. we did okay along the way. We had a lot of hits. But we were a live band. I, I think our, our forte there was actually performing live and, you know, filling the Albert Hall you know, the first time we did the Albert was on the Jimi Hendrix. I mean, this is, oh, yeah, that was the other thing. We had a residency in the Speakeasy. We were one of the first bands to have a residency there in the in 66 or 60, 67, I think it was. And in January 67, I mean, we'd all heard about Jimi Hendrix and he'd sort of walk into the Speakeasy and everyone, oh, there he is, that's the guy, you know. And one night, it was about three o'clock in the morning, we were doing our third set or last set, I can't remember, and suddenly Jimi Hendrix comes up and says, uh, hey, man, uh, I want to play guitar, you know. And the, the guitarist went to give him, he said, no, I want to play bass. And he went over to the bass player, took the bass, <laughs> put it on the wrong way around. So he's playing the wrong way because he was left-handed. And he, he looked at me because uh, I, I had the, I was the organ. I was sort of almost on the floor because in those days the stage was, was very small. And he looked at me, he said, I, he said what were you playing? I said we were going to play Otis Redding can't turn you loose and before I said before I could say do you know it he looked at the drummer and went one two three four and came in played it perfectly all the way through played the bass part and he said that was fun and he stayed up and did a couple more numbers and then we thought wow Hendrix you know asked if he could play with us you know then a couple of weeks later we were playing again and we saw the crowd move and we saw this guitar coming through the crowd, through the dance floor. And Jimmy had said, okay, I brought, he brought his guitar that night. Okay, so where can I plug in? Plugged in. And I, I said, boy, what are you going to play? And he went this. And I mean, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> we just, and Dennis was playing, you know, we, we played along. But I mean, what saved us after about 10 minutes of him playing? I don't know what we sounded like. <laughs> But I mean, he was amazing. But he went like this, and it was a very low ceiling. And he poked his machine heads into the ceiling and broke one of them. <laughs> so that actually saved us. We couldn't do any more. <laughs> so he said, "Oh, thank you, guys." He, you know, he was a bit pissed off. He damaged his guitar, but he went off. I think it was months later when he'd had all his hits. He'd had "Hey Joe" and things, and he's doing a tour. Apparently, he said to Chess Chandler, "I want Amen Corner on the tour." Uh, how he'd seen us, he'd heard though. You know, we were a teeny bopper band. By putting us on the on the tour, he was going to get the get a, a wider audience again, and it worked for him. You know, all the young girls that we got in suddenly fell in love with Jimi Hendrix as well. <laughs>
Amen Corner split and you played with Andy in Fairweather, was it because Andy wanted to move his sound on? Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, from the beginning, I could see that Amen Corner was a vehicle for Andy, I mean, to get himself known and get himself out there. Yeah. That was okay. It was it was a, vehicle, a good vehicle for me as well. I, I used it as best I could as we went along. And I managed to get to play with other bands and do sessions. And I was so lucky because I wasn't a great keyboard player. Never. I was just lucky. Um, I, I managed to be able to do what was needed at the time, you know. Uh, Andy said, oh, you know, let's get down to a five piece and do something a little bit different. Let's write some more music. Let's be a little bit more progressive. So the brass section were out. And um, and what happened is we started writing and we said, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a brass section on these tracks? <laughs> so the tracks that we were recording, we got, you know, we got a sort of big 10-piece brass section. We had all the top session players, Frank Ricotti, Derek Wadsworth, all these people in playing with us. Then we did some gigs like that, but of course it was very expensive to pay them. So we couldn't. And then we kept we kept it, we cut it back down to a five-piece band. I think we we stayed with two brass players for a while. But I mean that was that was Andy's vehicle again. It was called Fairweather. But that's when we had uh, natural sinner. Uh but you know, it came to by the end of 1970, I could see that this was only I mean, like I said, it was a vehicle for Andy. I could see it was going nowhere as a band, actually. So I left. Yeah. I just upped and um, I had a family at the time. I had a mortgage and no work. So I was taxi driving. I, I was minicab driving.
And then Laurie O'Leary, who was the manager of the Speakeasy, he said, oh, the Straub's looking for a keyboard player. I'd never heard of the Straub's at the time. He said, Rick Wakeman has just left. And I thought, oh, yeah, I thought I on top of the pops with the band. And I, I got confused because he kept saying Straub's. And I would go home and think, and I, I, for some reason, I thought of the Fugs. I was thinking, I'd, and then I looked up a video, uh, I looked up what the Fugs were, and I thought, God, no, I don't want to play with a, a band that shit on stage. <laughs> I'd read all this stuff about them, and I kept saying to Laurie, I don't want to join the Fugs. I don't. And he said, the Fugs? What do you want about? I said, the Fugs, the band you told me wanted a keyboard player. He said, no, the Straubs, the Straubs. I go for an audition. Well, I didn't. And then one day a car arrived and this guy got out and said, Laurie said, get in the car. <laughs> so I had to get in the car and I went, they took me to the Straub's audition. And my audition with Straub's was talking with them for a while in Dave Cousins' front room. And we talked about it. And then they said, um, do you drink beer? And I said, well, uh, yeah, I, you know, I drink a little. Oh, we'll sort that out, they said. And then they said, do you like curry? I said, yeah, I love curry. Oh, great. So they said, okay, we're off to the pubs. We went across to the White Bear across the road, which is where Straub's, you know, almost started. And I don't know how many beers we had. And then we went for a curry. And they said, okay, we're starting um, rehearsals next week. Yeah, we'll, we'll call you, let you know our managers will be in touch. And then Hud or somebody said, oh, but we haven't heard him play. <laughs> so in the, Dave's front room was an old, an old piano. So I sat down and for some reason, I don't know why, I played Dave Brubeck or something. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, okay, great. You can play. That's it. <laughs> so that was my audition for Straub's. And then we started rehearsing and David written the songs and then Hud was writing songs. And um, our first gig was at the Shaw Theatre. It was on a Sunday afternoon, I remember. And I, I was so scared. I was so frightened. They had all the press there and everything. <laughs> but it was a big success. And then we went... And we made um, the Grave New World album, which was then sort of put Straub's on the map. Benedictus that Tony Visconti produced was the first single, and that was that got in the charts. And it just went on from there. And then, of course, Haddon John wrote uh, part of the Union <laughs> and um, played it to us, and we thought, oh, no, that's a hit, you know, <laughs> that's the number one hit. Everybody's going to be singing that. You know, we're sort of... By this time, a sort of progressive folk rock band, if you like. But um, we we just had to do it. It was at the right moment. You know, it was the miners' strikes and everything. And the lyric on that is so down the middle, you can't tell whether it's for the unions or against them. So one minute we're on the steps of the Labour Party with Jack Jones having all the papers taking our pictures and everything. The next minute we're with the Conservative Party. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what happened with the Liberals, but, um, uh, but I, they didn't matter at the time, I don't think. And uh, we stayed at number one for weeks. It was amazing. Now I'm a union man, amazed at what I am. I say what I think, that the company stinks. Yes, I'm a union man. When we meet in the I'll be voting with them all With a hell of a shout It's our brothers out And the rise of the factories fall Oh, you don't get me I'm part of the union You don't get me I'm part of the union You don't get me I'm part of the union Till the day I 
of the company's spies And I don't get fooled by the factory rules Cause I always read between the lines And I always get my way If I strike for higher pay When I show my card to the Scotland Yard And this is what I say driving a taxi when you were doing session work because it said that you were on um, Get It On T-Rex. Was that through Tony Visconti? That was through Tony, yeah. That was after we did the... Um, yeah, was it after or before? Well, I, I, I'd i met Tony because he was going to produce. And then I used to... We used to... He was friends with John Congers as well. Yeah. And we used to go over to John's house because he had a studio in the basement. We'd sit and talk and have a drink. And then one night, Tony phoned me and said, oh, come with me. I, I want you to meet uh, to meet Mark. And um, we went to, it was Marquis Studios, I think. And it was around the back of, of Wardour Street somewhere. And I'd already met Mark down the speakeasy, so to speak. I didn't know him that well, but we knew yeah. to say hello and things, you know. So he said, oh, okay, yeah, I want some piano on these tracks. He said, I want, I've got this one track. He said... And I wanted to boogie. <laughs> That's what he said to me. So I put the headphones on. So I sat down at the piano. He said, uh, first of all, he sort of, he played me just this guitar riff and everything. And he said, oh, play, play him the track. So they played me the track. And as, when the track came on, it started up and there was piano on there. And I said, but you've got piano on, Mark. He said, oh, no, 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 take, take the piano off. Take the piano off. Play him the track. So he played me the track and I played and I buoyed as best I could. Very simple part. Very, very simple, just a thing. Great, he said, fantastic. And I, I did some glitches. He said, and then Tony said, oh, what about that other song? And they said to me, oh, can you do some more piano glissandos down? I guess just rub it. I said, yeah. He said, okay, we hit record. And so no backing or anything. I just bring, bring a couple of times, tried some different ways, did a couple of things. And uh, and that was it. I'd forgotten all about that. Any anyway, rate, uh, get it on came out, and there's 
me on piano there. But then there was some confusion because Rick said, well, I cut that track. And uh, I said, well, no, that's me playing. You know, it was all a bit confusing. But then I realized afterwards what the confusion was. That track was cut in Trident Studios, I think, with Rick on piano and the other guys there. And obviously Mark, uh, for some reason, thought it could be a bit, wanted it to be a bit different than it was. After many years, I said to Tony, I remember there was a piano. And then he said, yeah, he said, that must be the confusion. He said, but it is you on that track. Wow. Actually, the, the greatest kick I had from that track was one night switching on top of the pops. And they said, tonight we have T-Rex on and get it on is number eight or something in the charts. I can't remember what it was. And it came on and it's playing and there's my piano bring in there and I'm playing away. And I look and there's Elton John playing piano. <laughs> <laughs> but he's miming to my part. <laughs> now, I, I, I haven't met him and had a chance to say, hey, yo, thanks for miming to my part. Yeah, so that, that was great. I thought, what a privilege to have Elton John miming to your piano part. I bet he's never done that to anybody, you know. <laughs> that's the only time. You know. a- anyway, oh, and then um, another single comes out, Telegram Sam. What's on Telegram Sam? <laughs> piano bliss. I think it happens two or three times. <laughs> so I'm on Telegram Sam as well.
another track that you were on was uh, Men of Good Fortune, uh, Lou Reed. Do you remember recording that? Oh, yeah, I do. There's a, a story behind that one as well. <laughs> okay, Straubs had split up. I'm back minicab driving, taxi driving, listening to my records on the radio, <laughs> driving around <laughs> to earn money. And it was a good job to do because... You did, you know, I could say, oh, I'm not coming in tomorrow, you know, or something, you know, or I'll do nights tomorrow or I'll do days or whatever. And I could go and hang around the studios all the time. So I would be hanging around hoping to get session work or trying to pick up another gig. And this one night I was in Morgan Studios and Morgan was one of the few studios that actually had a bar. So I bought my half a pint and was sat there <laughs> and nothing much was happening. There were a few guys wandering in that I didn't know, but I'd been there a couple of hours. My half pint was down to a little dregs in the bottom, <laughs> and uh, I had no money, you know. And in walked Bob Ezrin. We'd met Bob in, he'd come to see us when we played in Toronto with Straubs and liked the band. And he said, oh, Blue, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, look, your drink's empty. Let me go, let me buy you a drink. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Bob. Okay. And he said, oh, this is great. He said, I've got a few guys in there. We're about to cut some tracks, he said, but they need to warm up. And the other keyboard players, he's got to go. And um, he said, come in and jam. I said, oh, I don't jam. <laughs> you know, and he said, oh, come on, come in. You know, so I went into the studio and as I'm walking in, Steve Winwood walks out. <laughs> I looked up, I went, oh, oh my God, what, what's going on here? So I walk into the studio and in studio, in the Morgan studio, the organ was just there on the side. So I got in, I, I sort of sat down, I looked around. At Jack Bruce on bass, Ainsley Dunbar on drums, JB on guitar, the guy that did the incredible guitar solo on Sweet Jane. And I'm looking around and I thought, oh, and they said, oh, come on, we want to warm up. And they started playing. Now, I mean, I, it's like the Jimi Hendrix thing. There's no way I can do I'm. I mean, luckily it's a Hammond. I can hold one note and switch the Leslie on and off and make it sound okay, you know. So we're doing this and they're having fun and they're warming up and they said, oh, okay, uh, Lou's coming now. We're going we're gonna to do this track. He's going to sing and we're going to... And they said, oh, come on, uh, you know, try some piano on, the, on this track. So... I thought, oh, so I moved off the organ over onto the piano. They played me the track and um, it was Men of Good Fortune. And um, I sat and <laughs> I did what I could do. I mean, I was still shaking, you know, I, I'm, I'm still nervous. I still can't believe I'm in the room, you know. I think I'd had another couple of drinks by then. So, yeah, I just do what I thought was, you know, I doodled a little bit. And I said, oh, yeah. I thought, oh, it's they're going to replace it, you know, at some point, you know. But I went in the studio and they said, hang around for a couple of nights. And I, I hung around. And um, actually, that first night after we did that, we are in the studio. And it was the first time I'd experienced a sort of a mirror going around um, with this white stuff on and, uh, and a note. And I was handed this and I looked and I thought, <laughs> oh, I'd seen what was going on. And I took the, the note and I thought it was my payment for the gig and I put it in my pocket <laughs> and they're all looking. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was, um, that introduced me to another, but it, it was, it was good. I mean, actually there's, a, there's another story about that as well, because after I'd done that, I mean, they were, they were joking in the studio. They, um, they were saying, oh, we've got to, we, you know, we've got to record this vocal before six o'clock or something like that. 
I said, what do you mean? They said, oh, well, it's Lou, you know, we got to get it before six o'clock, you know. Uh, and I mean, they were, they, were, they were joking, you know, but that was the thing that was going around. And after a couple of months later, I got a phone call and this guy phoned me and he said, oh, I'm doing an article or I'm writing a book about Lou Reed or something. And you were on the Berlin sessions and stuff. You were around then at that time, you know, he, he said to me, oh, the joke was then that, you know, they had to get Lou singing before six o'clock. Was that the joke, you know, at the time? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, not thinking about it. Oh, when, no. <laughs> when the book came out, he'd said that, oh, on that session, they had to get Lou Reed to do the, you know, Blue Weaver said that Lou Reed had to be in the, in the, in the thing before six o'clock. He, he, he reworded it, you know, then he'd asked Lou for a quote on that. And Lou said he was only drinking tea and he couldn't play. He, he couldn't play before or after six o'clock. He said about me, you know, <laughs> uh, which I thought was quite funny. He actually, it was a great retort, you know, and everything. And I thought, and for years I was trying to get to say, I was hoping I'd meet him again to, to explain to him what had happened. You know, I was sort of, I was conned and it was on the phone. I was tricked a little bit. It was reworded. Uh, it was reworked. So until the day that Lou died, I, I wanted to get to him. You know, he, he thought that I, you know, I must have said that, you know. And I said to Tony Visconti afterwards, oh, I wish I could have told him, you know, that was one thing. But I sort of forgot about it. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe there'd been occasions where I could have gone in contact, but I just, it was only when Lou was ill and I heard about everything that was going on. I thought, oh, yeah. I should be able to get to tell him, that, you know, the story behind that, that I, I didn't... Men of good fortune Often cause empires to fall While men of poor beginning Often can't do anything at all the rich son waits for his father to die The poor just drink and cry And me, I just don't care at all Men of good fortune Very often Can't do a thing While men of poor beginnings Often can Do anything At heart they try to act like a man Handle things the best way they can They have no rich Daddy to fall back on Often calls empire. 
empires to fall While men of poor beginnings Often can't do anything at all It takes money to make money, they say Look at the Fords Didn't they start that way? Anyway, makes no difference to me. Men of good fortune often wish that they could die. While men of poor beginnings Want what they have And to get it they'll die All those great things That life has to give They want to have money How did you get to play with Mark the Hoople then? Because you, you played on the US tour. Yeah, well, I was out of work again. I was I was cruising the studios. Up, I was up at Air Studios. <laughs> and um, I was at there. I'd been hanging around and looking. Oh, I know what had happened that afternoon. Yeah, I'd, I'd gone. Yeah, I think it was the same day. I'd actually got a session I think with Chris Thomas, and I, I can't remember whether it was with Badfinger, for Badfinger or not. For I'd got a session, so I'd gone up to Air Studios, and they weren't ready in the session, so I went to get a cup of hot chocolate out of the machine, which was right next door to the entrance to Studio A or Studio One in Air London, up in, in Oxford Circus. And I'm there, and I've got my cup of hot chocolate in my hand, and the, the door was partly open. I heard, and I think, my God, that sounds like the Beatles. And then I listened again, and I thought, no, it's it's McCartney or something like that. And as I'm standing there with my hot chocolate in my hand, the door opened. I fell in. Hot chocolate went all over me. And standing above me, he said, oh, my God, what's going on? And it was Paul standing looking down at me and the other door to the studio was in and sitting on the on the desk with Jeff Emmerich was Tony Visconti and he said blue and I said yeah Tony and Paul said you know this guy and Tony said yeah it's Blue Weaver he was a keyboard player with with, with Strobes and with Eamon and Linda said keyboard player oh bring him in and Tony said come in and then Paul went in 
they sat me down. As I'm sitting there, the orchestra is packing up the last few people just going out of the main studio. And she said, oh, Linda said, I've done so many keyboards on this part. You know, everybody tells me they're great, but, you know, we, we you know, and Paul said, oh, yeah, well, we're going to have a listen back. We've just done an orchestra on this album. Now we've put them on the whole orchestra. And Tony said, yeah, okay, wind the tape, tape back. And uh, Linda said to me, oh, when you hear the keyboard parts, tell me. And she said some mood parts, you know, tell me what you think. Is, is, it, is it okay? You know, so I've sat down. They press play. And I listened to the first playback of Band on the Run album. I'm sat there. <laughs> uh, now, I don't know how long I was there. I was in awe, you know, and then the same, you know, like that. I'm going, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. It's fantastic. And I'm listening to this thing. And I thought, my God, they've just put the, and Tony was checking the balancing and stuff of the orchestra. And um, so I must have been the first person to hear that album, you know, outside of the, the, the circle in that room at the time. And, um, and then I suddenly remembered that I was supposed to be doing a session in the other room <laughs> and I ran off and ran back and I said, oh, I'm really sorry. I said, you won't believe what happened, you know? And they said, Oh, you're okay. You're right. So I can't remember what happened there or what track that was, but then I told them the story afterwards and they said, Oh, amazing. Uh, but years later, when Tony was producing the album for Linda, they, she asked me to come and do some stuff. So I was playing, I was doing them they, at the album in Tony's studio at that time. But then Paul came in one day and said to Linda, "You can't, you you can't do the album anymore. I'm making a film. I want you. I want you with me." You know? Yeah. So the album was put on hold. Then, but I've got a lovely book of her photographs that she signed for me at the time. Yeah. What was the events that led up to? Uh, Mot the Hoople then. Ah, there again in Air Studios another day, hanging around looking for work, standing by the chocolate machine again. <laughs> and who walks up but Morgan Fisher, who I'd known from the love affair years ago. Yeah. And he said, Blue, Blue, hey, what are you doing here? I said, you know, I'm doing... he said, what are you doing at the moment? I said, are you doing anything? I said, no, not really. I said, I'm looking for work and everything. He said, oh, hold on a minute. And he went off and he came back with this black haired curly-haired guy with dark glasses. And I thought, hmm, what's this? And this guy, all right. you know. And Morgan said, this is blue, you know, good guy. And Ian looked at me and he said, um, Morgan says you can play organ. I said, yeah, okay. Uh, okay, we're going to America in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, you, you know, will you come along? <laughs> so it was like that. So we had some rehearsals before. And then... Um, we got to America and he said, oh, we got this young band with us called Queen, you know, and I watched them every night. I thought, oh, amazing. We were the first rock band to get, well, I say we, I, as, I was never actually officially a, a part of Mott the Hoople. I was just a guest. They just, I just went along. Yeah. <laughs> I needed the work as well. It was great. But what, what, a, what a tour. It was amazing, you know. And um, we did the Eurus Theatre and was the first rock bands ever to be allowed to play in a Broadway theatre. It was incredible. I don't know what connections Mott's managers had, but they, they definitely had some along the way there uh, to pull off a thing like that. And, of course, it, that really made Queen, you know, a week in New York like that. Yeah. You know, Freddie sent me a Christmas card every year after that, you know. Yeah, so that was uh, how I joined Mott. <laughs> 
25, speed drive, don't want to stay alive. When you're 25, I'm when you're stealing clothes from Marks and Sparks. And Freddy's got spots from ripping off the stars. Got his thighs, a funky little boat race. The television man is crazy, sighing with juvenile delinquent rats. for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. 
Thank you.